if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Acts, chapter 8. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, you can actually find it on page 916. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 40, so we'll be looking at pages. You'll need to turn to page 916 and expect to turn to 917. The Lord is a God who loves his people. He loves them with a steadfast love. He loves them and so he will pursue them. Like a loving shepherd whose heart is knit to his flock, he will chase after his wayward lambs. He gathers them to himself and he restores them. It is God's delight to rescue and redeem his flock, to gather his people into his house, into his presence to commune with him, to take on his likeness, and to be restored to him in perfect fellowship. This is the pleasure of God. In John chapter 10, a chapter that we really have visited many times over the past few weeks, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, who lays down his life for the flock. He is not like the hired hand who cares only for himself, what he can make out of the flock, and abandons it in the face of danger. To the contrary, Jesus knows his flock. He loves his flock, and his own know and love him. With authority, Jesus says that he lays down his life for his people, and that he takes it up again, so that his sheep may have life and fellowship and communion with him, even as he himself has life in the Father. Jesus tells us that he received this charge from God the Father, and that for his redemptive atoning work, the Father loves him. So it is clear as we hear Jesus' words that God takes pleasure in gathering his people into himself, to have a true and real and personal relationship with him, to know him even as he knows them, and to rescue them from the power of Satan and sin and death, to dwell as sons and daughters in his kingdom. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, fear not, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This morning we're looking at a passage in which we get to witness God's passion in the pursuit of his people. It's one thing to talk about God's passion for his people in the plural corporate sense, but even as that is, that is true, the scriptures also indicate to us that God is equally passionate in the pursuit of his individual lambs. And in Acts chapter 8, verses 25 through 40, we get a better glimpse of God's commitment to that end. And so I hope as we study this passage together this morning, you will be impressed with three realities. That God is passionately committed to the joy of his people. That he has chosen for the glory of Christ to incorporate his church into the work he is doing to gather his flock and that he will see to it, most certainly, that his people are saved. 
these realities are not only clear, they're not only clearly evident in our passage today, but I believe that they are essential convictions we must hold as a church. If we're to joyfully obey Jesus' command, his calling, and his commission on us. So, let's begin with our text. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Once again, we're in Acts chapter 8. I'll be starting at verse 25 and reading through verse 40. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and he passed, and, and, he pa- and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Please be seated. This passage has some, sig- some personal significance to me. First person I ever baptized was an Ethiopian. When I was in high school, I, I got a copy of a book by John Piper called The Pleasures of God. That book changed my life because it opened up a whole new understanding to me about God and His work. More specifically, it opened my eyes to the reality of God's delight in being God. And in time, I came to understand that God's delight in being God is actually the basis for the delight and for the joy of His people. God satisfies His people not with temporal created things, but with himself. I also came to a realization that even as Christians are filled with delight in God, as we're united in a real relationship with him, so also it is the joy of believers to see that joy go out to others. 
So the psalmist sings, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity. That joy is the theme song of our passage this morning. Just as joy came to the city of Samaria, as we were reading earlier in Acts chapter 8 last week, as the gospel of the kingdom of God and the name of Christ was preached there, so joy came to this Ethiopian man in the middle of the Judean desert. And so to summarize the main idea of our passage this morning, we see the simple truth that God is committed to the joy of his people. God is committed to the joy of his people. He makes us glad in him. In our time this morning, I want to show you the commitment that God has to making his people glad in him. My prayer is, is that we will go from this place having a better understanding, but more importantly, a confidence in God's effectual pursuit of his sheep. That we will share this godly passion and this desire with him. And that we will rejoice together in the way that he transforms the barren landscape of the fallen human heart into an Eden that is filled with his abiding presence and fellowship. So I have three points, really three handholds, to help us navigate our way through what Luke has recorded for us in this passage. So first we're going to be looking at a divine appointment. A divine appointment. Second, we're going to look at a clear path. A clear path. And finally, we'll be looking at water in the desert. So, let's begin by observing what Luke has recorded for us about God's pursuit of his people and this divine appointment he had with a certain man in the desert. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we are talking about his power and his authority to rule over his creation. A a king, another word for a king is a sovereign. He is sovereign over the lands that are under his dominion. So also, God is sovereign over his creation. He made it. He sustains it. He rules over it. He does this in in accordance with the goodness of who he is. We witness his excellence, his wisdom, and his holiness in the way that he rules over his creation. The Bible teaches us that there is an order to the ebb and the flow of everyday life, an order which is sustained and kept by God. God is not an impersonal force. We're not living in Star Wars. God's rule is over the comings and the goings of his creation, and it is not arbitrary, since he does all things in accordance with the excellency of his perfect nature. That is why he upholds perfect justice. That is why he shows mercy and grace. That is why he keeps his creation in perfect love according to his good pleasure. God is not pleased to simply allow the world to exist apart from a true knowledge of him. He created the world and all that is in it out of the overflow of the delight he has in the fame of his name. So God's glory is the highest good. And God is pleased to spread that glory, that glory of his name, throughout all creation. Because God is pleased to fill his people, to fill people with true, authentic joy that comes with being united in a right relationship with him, we see that he is likewise pleased to expand the good news of the gospel to the whole world. As we look at what Luke has recorded for us in the book of Acts, 
especially in what we have seen in the way that the gospel came to Samaria, and now how it has come to this Ethiopian eunuch, we see just how dedicated God is to this purpose of spreading the joy of salvation to every tribe, nation, people, and language. We see how dedicated God is to making the nations glad in himself. Not only that, we see how God's people are called to share that same priority with him in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we accomplish the works which God has set aside for us to do, living as witnesses and ambassadors of Christ in a fallen world. In verses 25 through 26, Luke, Luke says that after the apostles, that's Peter and John, had testified and spoken the word of the Lord in Samaria, that they returned to Jerusalem, and as they did, they were preaching in all the villages of the Samaritans as they were going. That barrier which previously stood between the Jews and the Samaritans had been completely broken down by the good news of the gospel. And so we see that as the apostles went, they were freely preaching the gospel everywhere they were. Now, as we read this, it, it's possible that Philip actually went with the apostles back to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke doesn't actually distinguish that for us. He simply says, they. And while it would be hard, I think, for myself to imagine that Philip would have left such a productive ministry in Samaria to return with the apostles for apparently no particular reason to Jerusalem, it would, in fact, leave Philip in a better position to make his way to the next place where God called him to go. So we see in verse 26 that Luke tells us that the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, this road was many miles away from the city in Samaria where Philip had been. And it leaves me inclined to understand that he had, in fact, returned with Peter and John to Jerusalem, though clearly he didn't stay there very long. The road from Jerusalem to Gaza stretched from north to south, and it went through the areas which, if you read in the Old Testament, would have belonged to the Philistines. And there were actually two roads that connected Jerusalem to Gaza, and so Luke distinguishes this place for us where the Spirit sent Philip, telling us that it was a desert place, which we know was the road that was less traveled. Now, the angel of the Lord who sent Philip doesn't seem to have told him why he was being sent to the middle of nowhere in the desert. He simply told Philip to go. And in verse 27, Luke tells us Philip rose up and that he went. Meanwhile, Luke says that there was an Ethiopian, a, a eunuch, who was a high-ranking court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was at the same time returning home from Jerusalem where he had come to worship. Now, Luke doesn't tell us this man's name, which is interesting, but he does tell us a little bit about what he did, about his rank, and why he was in Jerusalem. So I actually find him really intriguing. Ethiopia is a long way from Jerusalem. If, even if you had the money like this man did to travel by chariot, it would have taken you a long time. He had gone to a lot of trouble to leave his homeland in the south, to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, we might think to ourselves that driving 20 to 30 minutes to go to church is a long time. But at minimum, you have to understand, this man, it had taken him days to get to the temple. That, that meant that besides the physical effort uh, that it had taken to get here, he also had to take a leave of absence from his duties to the royal court of the queen of the Ethiopians. So we're talking about a man who has gone to a lot of trouble to do this. 
Luke tells us that he was in charge of all the treasure that she had. So he's basically his, her minister of finance, which is not a small position. It explains why he's riding in a chariot. And it also explains to us a little bit of the work and the trouble that he had gone to, to travel to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And as we think about how much work this would have taken, I think we gain a little bit of a glimpse of the heart of this man. This was a man who was seeking after God. These troubles were, he was willing to trade these troubles to pursue God, to, to try to get to know God. Now Luke doesn't say how this man had heard about the Lord or how long he had been seeking after God in this way, but I'm really impressed by the links that he went to, to be at God's house. He had been captured by God's fame, and he had traveled and risked and sacrificed to try and be close to God. What this man found when he arrived in the temple in Jerusalem, Luke doesn't tell us, but I have to wonder if, if he knew that despite all the troubles he had gone to, that he would only be allowed to come so close to the temple. He wouldn't actually have been allowed to come in. Did he know as he made his way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, that he was to be excluded from the fellowship that only the Jews were able to have in the inner courts? Did he know that as a Gentile, he could only come really to, to see and observe, but not ultimately to participate? Did he know that as a eunuch, he could not join the assembly that gathered to worship God in the temple? I don't know if he knew those things, but I know that when he came to Jerusalem, he would have felt them full force. This was a man who was clearly seeking after God, but he had at least two great walls cutting him off from what he longed for. His riches and his position with the, with, the, with the queen were not enough to gain him a position with God, which he so desired. I have to wonder what was going on in this man's mind as he departed from Jerusalem and from the city of the temple. Was he disappointed? Was he discouraged? Well, Luke doesn't say but clearly we see he has not given up on seeking the Lord. While he was in Jerusalem, we're told that he had apparently bought a copy of the book of Isaiah, something that would have been incredibly expensive to take back with him to Ethiopia. He wanted to know God. His soul was thirsty for God. And so he was seeking God in the scriptures. Now Luke, as we read this, Luke is a masterful storyteller. And he has framed this account in such a way that helps us to see that God was doing something in this man's life and also in the life of Philip that neither one of them were fully aware of until it happened. As these men went about their day, God was doing something to prepare this man to have a fuller, richer experience of himself than what he could have at the temple. Even if he even if he had been able to enter that inner sanctum to worship there. God was keeping the word he had spoken to Jeremiah the prophet when he said, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And to anyone else, this day's events must have looked like just any normal day. But the decisions that led these two men, two men to be on the same road at the same time were clearly, Luke shows, as being orchestrated by another, being directed by a sovereign God who was determined to pursue this lamb, to overcome the barriers that would have otherwise excluded him from gathering with his people to bring him into the fold to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why God put Philip on the road 
in the middle of the desert. And in verse 29, we see how the Spirit of the Lord directed Philip to go over and join this chariot. Suddenly, the reason that the angel had told Philip to go to this deserted place became clear. And so in obedience, Luke says that Philip ran to this man and and began to speak to him. Now, before we get into the conversation that actually happened between the eunuch and Philip, I just want to hit the pause button because I want to focus here just a little bit on the sovereignty of God at work so that we can see, uh, really perhaps more importantly, and maybe we can gain a glimpse here of the heart of God. What's going on here is not a coincidence. God had a divine appointment with this man in a time and in a place of his own choosing. Now, Philip may have been the one who was physically running after this chariot, but God is the one clearly at work to bring this beloved sheep into the fold through his witness. God is the one who took Philip from a productive ministry in Samaria to the north to a deserted road in the south of Jerusalem. God is the one who was working in the heart of this man, preparing him to receive the gospel. He is the one who had, God is the one who had put in this man's heart to come to Jerusalem in the first place. God had been confronting him with the reality that he could not enter the presence of God's holiness in his present condition. And then God is the one who is working to bring relief to this man through the gospel of Jesus to the glory of Jesus. This this is the heart of God. This is the love of God. In Matthew 18, verses 12 through through 14, Jesus says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he leave, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is heaven, who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We see that happening here on this road to Gaza. This man was that lost sheep. As a Gentile, he was cut off from God and from the promises of the covenants. As a eunuch, The law did not allow him to come before the Lord, even if he had been a Jew. Beside all those physical barriers, there was also the issue of this man's own sin. He was cut off under the curse of sin and without hope in the world. But God, but God who loves with an everlasting love, who calls sinners by name and has paid the penalty and reconciled them to himself through the blood of his own precious son, pursued this man, this eunuch. He he was not satisfied simply with the rejoicing of the Samaritans in the north. He brought joy to the south as well, to this man, a man who had no way to him. He chased down this little lamb, sending Philip with the good news of great joy, which the angel said is for all the peoples. Friends, before we see ourselves in Philip's shoes, called to be witnesses about the gospel, we must first see ourselves in the shoes of the eunuch. In Ephesians 2, Paul reminds us that we were apart from, that apart from Christ, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we all willfully walked, following the course of this world, following after the prince of the power of the air, unable and unwilling to come to God because we love the darkness of our sin. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us even while we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by his grace. He pursued us. 
He found us. We are His because He saved us. That is the heart of God. This is the heart of mercy that makes dead hearts alive and which frees us from captivity to sin and the destiny of eternal judgment. It's the heart of the Father who runs after the prodigal son and doesn't listen to his bargaining for a place in his house, but instead forgives him and embraces him in his arms and takes him into his house and washes him clean and clothes him and restores him and sets a great feast before all his house in joy because his son, his son is home. That is the joy of the Father to bring sinners like you and me into his house. As we see the way that God pursued this Ethiopian, overcoming every boundary that was in the way, with this gospel of grace, I think we have to have two reactions. First, we have to soak in the astonishing and wonderful love of God. I I don't know what was on your mind and on your heart this morning when you came in here. I know many of you are going through some tough stuff. You're thinking about the challenges that are waiting for you on the other side of that door as you leave. You're thinking about getting into your car and driving home and what this week is going to look like. I don't want to diminish in any way the the things or the challenges that you're going to face this week, maybe that you're facing right this moment. But as we look at those things, what I do want to do is I want to set your feet on this rock of God's love. If this is the way that God rescues us, uh, the way that he calls us, the way that he loves us and sends his son, if this is the way that God restores us and overcomes every boundary and every barrier that separates us from him, is if this is the way that God makes us into new creatures in Christ, then we can go from this place with true joy because we know we are loved. We, we have a Father who loves us, who pursues us, who delivers us, who, according to the gospel of Jesus, will one day receive us into His presence with great joy to His glory. Those challenges just kind of fade away when you live in light of that reality. And so as we see God's passion for His people, for their joy in Himself, I think we just need to, we need to take some moments today to just soak it in. To, to rest as it is, like in a bathtub, and just soak. Even as we do, the second reaction we ought to have to this is to take all pride and to drown it in the water of God's grace and mercy. We love him because he first loved us. We have joy because he put Christ to grief. We are made righteous because our sins were laid on him. If this is the heart of the Father, which has so chased us down and rescued us, shall we, who have been so loved, not suspend anything that we have against anyone else, but share this love with others? And to summarize what the Apostle John writes in his first letter, The evidence that we know God and have His Spirit in us is not just that we have this vertical relationship with God, but also that that love fills us and overflows in us horizontally onto others. It is essential that the people of God be captured by this heart of God so that we live according to His priorities in alignment with the nature of His character. And that brings us to our our second point, a clear road. Now when Philip ran up to the chariot to join this man, Luke tells us that he overheard him 
reading from the prophet Isaiah. It was, it was common in this day and time to read, especially the scriptures, out loud. So he's reading it loud enough as Philip is running up and huffing and puffing. He's hearing the words of Isaiah being read. And, and, and Luke actually even gives us the exact passage he's reading. It comes from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, which say, Like a sheep... He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now Philip knows he's been sent here for a purpose, and he's hearing the words of Isaiah being read. And if you're a Christian, as you're reading this, you know that this is from uh, one of Isaiah's servant songs, specifically talking about the suffering of Christ. So you've got to imagine Philip is starting to get really excited as he's, walking, as he's running up, and he's hearing these words. And so he asks the man, do you, not just can you read what you're, what you're reading, but do you understand it? Do, do you know what you're reading a bit of an odd question, I suppose, to ask someone who you've never met. But it was the right question. Because in verse 31, Luke says that the man answered him, How can I unless someone guides me? So he was reading the word. He wanted to know the word, but he didn't quite understand it yet. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now as we read the rest of this conversation, which Luke's recorded for us, we realize that this man was, was struggling to understand what he was reading. And in verse 34, he asked Philip, about whom does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? This is a fair question. One that if you, if you study what Jewish commentators have said about this, you will see is wide-ranging in opinion and, and really unconvincing. This eunuch really wasn't struggling with the meaning of the words he was reading. He was struggling with their significance, trying to make sense of who Isaiah was speaking of when he described this suffering servant to the, of the Lord. He's missing information, information which Philip has been sent there to bring him. In verse 35, Luke tells us that Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Philip was able to explain to him that Isaiah, though he did suffer as a prophet, was in fact speaking of someone else, someone whose suffering is able to make atonement for sin. Someone who came to bear our griefs and to carry our sorrows, who is despised and rejected by men, smitten by God and afflicted, who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, whose chastisement has brought us peace and by whose wounds we are healed. Whereas like sheep we have all gone astray, the Lord had laid the iniquity of us all on him. In his oppression and in his affliction, he did not protest or open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken from the for the transgressions of God's people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And though he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, he was killed. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And that was not the end, for Isaiah says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, which means he's alive. He will prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. For by his knowledge shall the righteous one, the servant of the Lord, make many to be accounted righteous. His portion is with the strong man. And he is the one who divides the spoil with the strong. This is someone, and Philip knows his name. He has a name. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
So as Philip rode with this man, he was not only able to, to, to tell him about the significance of Jesus' death, but also about how Jesus' work on the cross and in the resurrection had fulfilled these words. He, he was able to share with him not only the right interpretation of the scriptures, but was also able to point him to the glory of Jesus. Starting here, and really, what a place to start. Philip told this unit the good news about Jesus, about how he had fulfilled the hope of the fathers, how he had fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, that he was the Son of Man and the Son of God, the offspring promised from of old, that he suffered and died for sin in accordance with the Scriptures, that he had been buried, and that he had rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was ruling and reigning in glory at the right hand of God, even now as the victorious Christ. That, that's what Philip told this man as they rode along and a bumpy chariot. He would think, perhaps, that God could have and maybe should have just done all of this by sending his angel to meet with the eunuch in the chariot rather than sending Philip, of all people, on a dusty road in the Judean wilderness. And while it is true that God could have done that, he didn't. And I find that really intriguing. Actually, I think it makes an important point to us about the way God has chosen to magnify Jesus specifically by appointing this gospel ministry to his church to use believers like Philip and Peter and John and Paul and Charles Spurgeon and you and me to declare the good news of salvation. God has not appointed the ministry of reconcilia reconciliation, this, this ministry of gospel proclamation to angels, although they would love to do it. He has appointed it to his beloved church. What a humbling responsibility. God has appointed us as his people to, with the scriptures and with the power of the Holy Spirit, to actively clear the road, to show people the end of the road in Christ. We might argue that the gospel would be a whole lot more persuasive if it came from an angel than from us. But let us remember that the angels do not have, they have not received or experienced the grace of God in the way that we have if we're in Jesus. Christ did not die for angels. He did not take an angelic nature on himself. Rather, he took a human nature on himself and died for our sin. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 9 starting verse 9 it says that the ministry that in the ministry of the gospel God has appointed the reveal for the re the revealing of the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places so here's what that means friends if you're a Christian Heaven is watching you, and it is rejoicing over you. Not because you have anything to offer in and of yourself, but because of the way God is displaying the mystery of His grace to you and in you for the glory of His name. To the Corinthians, Paul explains, we have this treasure in jars of clay, broken bodies that are still touched by sin, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The Bible calls the church the body of Christ here on earth. And as we see in the case of Philip and this Ethiopian, we see that God delights in magnifying the glory of Christ by employing us as instruments in the hands of our Redeemer, spreading the good news of the gospel everywhere, 
He has appointed us to be his witnesses, to clear the path, as Philip did, to the proper application and understanding of the word. When we, when we put what we have already seen about God's pleasure in pursuing and saving his people together with the way he has called us in our lives to be his witnesses, to be ready, to be prepared, to share the hope that lives within us, we, I think, gain confidence to speak the truth in love to others, to point them to Christ, trusting that God will save. We get to point people to the fulfillment of God's promises and the only one by whom we can be rescued. And that brings us to our third point this morning, water in the desert. I would have loved to have been in that chariot with Philip. As he unpacked, I expect not only this scripture, but other scriptures, and told this man the good news of Jesus. I would have loved to hear Philip make his way through the law and the prophets to show, to show through the lens of Christ how all of God's promises are fulfilled in him and by him. But more than that, I would have loved to have seen the face of this man. This man who was seeking after God and then come to a true knowledge of God and a true saving faith in Jesus. In verse 36, Luke says that as they were going down the road, they came to some water. Now remember, this is the middle of the desert. And the eunuch says, see, see here is water. What prevents me from being, and being baptized? So in the time between when Philip had first run up to him and coming to this place in the road, God had worked in this man's heart and he was a believer. And giving a command to the chariot, he and Philip both go down to the water. Philip baptizes him just as Jesus had commanded his disciples to do. And then we see with his mission completed, the Spirit of the Lord whisks Philip away. I don't know what that, I don't know what that looked like exactly. But it wasn't as if Philip just walked off into the sunset. Suddenly the, the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing because he had Experience God. He had this relationship with God now. Meanwhile, Philip, we're told, found himself in Azotus, and true to his uh, to his pattern of life, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns that he came to until he came to Caesarea. Now, this is the last we're going to hear about this eunuch, and it's the last we hear of Philip until chapter 21, when Paul is making his way to Jerusalem and stops off at Philip's house there. Luke has under the inspiration of the Spirit, has, has put this here to show us, though, I think, how God is dedicated to the pursuit and the salvation of his people, specifically in this way. To do this in a way only he could, demonstrating to us the faithfulness of Jesus' words when he says that all that the Father gives him will come to him. Once again, Luke will not let us believe that this was a mere coincidence that Philip and this man arrived at water in a desert place when they did. Again, we see the sovereign hand of God all over this. And there is just so much significance, not only to the way that God worked to save this man, but also in the place where he saved him, which shows the, richest, rich, the richness of God's commitment to save his people to us. I, I really appreciate, actually, that this man had a copy of the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah actually has a special, special message of hope for eunuchs in particular in Isaiah chapter 56 which shows us the riches and the depths of what Christ has done, which this man then got to experience firsthand. And before we get to that one, I, I want to read two other passages from the book of Isaiah, which I think just put this in just an astonishing light. So Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 through 21 says this, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, this is God speaking, I am doing a new thing. 
now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me. The jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Do you think it was a coincidence that they arrived at water when they did? Isaiah 51, verse 3, The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts her all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and voice of song. Finally, Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to the love, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servant, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. When this eunuch went to Jerusalem, he didn't get to experience a single thing of that in the temple. And I just can't imagine that a man who was willing to suspend his whole life to go on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem didn't come away with with emptiness, feeling his separation, feeling that he was that dry branch that had been cut off, saying to himself, I have no portion with these people because of my state, and I have no way to deliver myself. The law prevented this man from entering just as it would have prevented all of us. In our sin, the law looks at us and it judges us. That's what makes these promises in Isaiah so incredible. Because God said he would give to foreigners and eunuchs a place in his very house, a monument and a name better than children, which would not be cut off. Which, if you know what a eunuch is, you can see how that's connected. Under the law, this man was a reflection of the wilderness he was traveling in. He was a dry, barren tree cut off and cast out. But now something had happened. God had brought water to the wilderness. The desert had become as an Eden. Because through Christ, that suffering servant, God had replaced the judgment of the law with the righteousness of Christ and with his own presence. A spring of living water sprung up in this man's heart. And he went from this place rejoicing because he had life and he had been reconciled to God. This is what the gospel does. Sin makes us a barren wasteland. We were made to dwell in Eden, in the city of God, with God. The sin had made us a barren wasteland, like a barren dry tree. But Christ has come. And he makes all things new. 
He fills us with joy and gladness. He fills us with thanksgiving and a voice of song. The dividing wall that separated us from God has been broken down, and we are the sheep of his pasture. Oh, friend, does your soul feel dry and barren this morning? Do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you feel far from God? This message is for you. See God's commitment to your joy. Not just in making you happy in some things, but making you truly joyful in Him. He makes His people glad in Himself with a true, enduring joy that never runs out. He makes the barren place a garden. He brings those that are broken and far off near. He satisfies the hungry with righteousness. And he brings life to dead hearts. He fills us with his own pleasure of his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, as we have witnessed today an impossible work that you accomplished, not just in putting Philip in a certain place at a certain time, on a certain road to meet a certain man, to say a certain thing, who was doing, reading a certain message, We see, Father, how you have done a in more incredible thing in conquering sin and breaking the stronghold of Satan and establishing your kingdom on the earth in the work of Christ and of calling people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language to come into your house and to be joined to you as a people of your pasture. Father, we stand in awe of that as we remember what Christ has done, as we look forward to what he will do, please give us joy. Give us a joy that won't run out. Give us that joy that comes up like a bubbling spring in the heart. And let that overflow from us onto others, we pray. Keep us faithful in the work you've called us to do. And give us a joy that never runs out. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.